Today we have increment 110 of our Hebrews 2020 We See Jesus series, and this is the 99th message in Hebrews that we've done since we split up back in March of 2020. And so we will be going once again, one more time, a pass at Hebrews 4:12 to 13. And we'll open with a word of prayer. Father, we're repeatedly brought in our attentiveness to Psalm 119, verse 18. And we ask you to open the eyes of our heart that we may see Jesus. And we also remember the next verse where it talks about us being strangers and pilgrims in this world. Do not hide your commandments from us, Father, so we'll know what to do for such a time as this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, as we mentioned before, the Cairo Geniza Targum manuscript, Palestinian Fragments, manuscript double A of Exodus 12:13 says, my word will see the blood. And this I've called a metaphor throughout Hebrews, really throughout the entirety of the scriptures, of the blood groove, I like to call it, that goes the length of the blade of the word of God. Today's title will be entitled, Tois Ophthalmois Autu, The Eyes of Him, The Eyes of Him. And once again, we'll go to a comparison of Hebrews 4.12 and 13 with Hebrews 9.14, which shows the blood groove. Hebrews 4.12 and 13 shows the blade of the word. Hebrews 9.14 shows the blood groove of the word. And it says that the word sees the blood. The word agrees with the blood. Any gaze of God's eyes into our hearts and thoughts and tensions is a gaze through the blood of Christ. And both the blood that purifies the conscience and the thoughts and intents of the rational consciousness of man are on the fourth level of the human rational consciousness. And so once again, Hebrews 4.12, Indeed, the word of God, is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit and of nerve fibers and myelin. And it's able to judge the deliberations and determinations of the heart, the human self-consciousness and the human rational and intentional consciousness. There is no created being that is hidden from his sight. Everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed to the eyes of him, the eyes of him. Tois ophthalmois autu. That'll be our focus today, the eyes of him. We could say that today, though we see Jesus, we want you to know Jesus sees us. He sees us with his own eyes, his eyes from which radiates an unthinkable kind of love, an unimaginable kind of charity and mercy and truth and kindness. So when you see him as he is, be prepared to see him 
as he looks upon you with yet unimagined love. Hebrews 9.14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who by the age-abiding Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, the act of ultimate love, purify our conscience from dead works, so we can serve the living God. There's the blood groove, once again the sword. Indeed, the word of God, or the blade, is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit and of nerve fibers and myelin, and it's able to judge the deliberations and determinations of the heart. There is no created being that's hidden from his sight. Everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we are accountable, or better, to whom we must give an account. The eyes of him is the subject of what we might call a meditation. In Genesis 16, we're treated to one of the most tender exchanges in all the Bible. It's the exchange between Yahweh and Hagar, the Egyptian slave woman. Hagar fled from Sarai, who treated her with great contempt, she took Ishmael, her son, by Abraham with her, for Ishmael was still in her womb. Ishmael was in her womb, a son that she would have by Abraham. In the desert, she was met by the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, Yahweh himself. He told her to go back, and this is difficult, of course, and to be under Sarai's authority once again. He also promised that her descendants would be countless and that she must, she would also have a son that she would call Ishmael, Ishmael, and his name means God pays attention. God pays attention. We're told to be attentive, and God is very attentive. We're told to be attentive to God, and God is very attentive to us. Hagar called Yahweh by the name, You are the God who looks upon me. You are the God who looks upon me. She was so relieved that God met her in the desert, revealed to her a fountain of water, and gave her the promise that would be true for her son. In Genesis 16:13, again, please pay attention to this. She named Yahweh the God who looks upon me. And then she called the nearby fountain of water in the desert, she called it this, the well of the one who lives and sees. The living God is the seeing God. He is the living God. His word is living, alive and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he is a seeing God. Genesis sixteen fourteen. In Second Chronicles, which the Septuagint calls Second Supplements, sixteen nine a, the Scripture says, quote, "For the eyes of the Lord, the eyes of Him, 
the eyes of the Lord, scan the whole earth to strengthen every heart that is fully toward him. God strengthens the heart, of course, by grace and by nothing we could earn or deserve in Hebrews 13.9. In 1 Samuel, which Septuagint calls First Reigns, 16.7b, the Lord told Samuel, God won't look as a mortal will see. For a mortal will see into a face. That's literally what he says. A mortal will see into a face. It's usually translated, a mortal or man looks upon the outward appearance. But God will see into a heart. So to this we may now add, indeed the word of God is currently living and active and sharper than every double-edged blade, even penetrating as far as a separation of soul and spirit and of nerve fibers and myelin, and it's able to judge the deliberations and determinations of the heart. There is no created being that is hidden from his sight. Everything and every being in creation is naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Lord, Yahweh, looks upon the heart. The Lord assesses the thoughts and intents of the heart. Omniscience, which is all-knowing, omnipresence, which is everywhere present, and omnipotence, which is all power, are attributed to the word of God. Again, the word of God is personified here, for it critically assesses the deliberations and determinations of rational, intentional consciousness of every single person. And even scans the neurological action potentials of every creature, human or animal, reptilian or insect, fish or fowl. Jesus is Yahweh who sees. He is the Lord, the God who sees. Our series is called We See Jesus. Just as important as we see Jesus, Jesus sees us. And I want to give you a couple examples from the Gospels where this can be illustrated. In Matthew 9, 4, it says, And Jesus, seeing their deliberations, that's the deliberations of his critics, his opponents, his detractors, He said, why do you have evil deliberations in your hearts? Deliberations is what he uses here, basically, in the Greek. Also, again, translated sometimes more generally as thoughts, is the Greek word that the pastor who who teaches uses in Hebrews 4.12. In other words, the same word in Hebrews 4.12 4.12 is used in Matthew 9.4. It's N-E-N-T-H-U-M-E-S 
I-S in the singular. And enthumesis, enthumesis. Enthumesis is found also in Matthew 12:25 in connection with Jesus, quote, knowing their deliberations. He knew already that they had planned to kill him. They denied it. Oh, we're, we're not planning to kill you. In John 8, he said it, in 843 and 844. He knew they were going to plan to kill him. He knew that was their intention because he saw the hearts. Jesus is the word made flesh. So if the word of God is able to assess critically and accurately the deliberations and determinations of the human heart, and even able to scan accurately the action potentials of the nervous system of all creatures, then the word of God must be divine. Now, I, I would take this with also lesson 109. This is increment 110. I would take this together with the insights we have in increment 109, which both of these messages are on Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, and bringing in Hebrews 9, 14. Indeed, to attribute divinity to some other word of God than the incarnate word would be to propose a fourth subject in the Godhead, and that would be blasphemy. I'll say that again. The word of God must be divine because its attributes include omnipresence, omnipotence, and omniscience. Its activities include the ability to assess thoughts and intentions of the heart. It must be divine. So to attribute divinity to some other so-called word of God other than the incarnate word, is to propose a fourth subject in the Godhead. So, as we learned last time, the word of God must apply to God in his oneness and God in his triunity, as well as specifically to the Son of God, who is also called the Word of God. John 1.1, John 1.2, John 1.14, Revelation 19.13-16. through 16. So the eyes of him to whom we must give an account are the all-seeing eyes of the omnipresent, omniscient God who is as to his existence and essence and act love. Let me say that again. This is, a, after all, and I can't forget this, a theological exegesis of Hebrews. The eyes of him to whom we must give an account are the all-seeing eyes of the omniscient, omnipresent God who is, as to both his essence and existence and to his act, love, and who is rightly called the God of all grace in 1 Peter 5.10, the God of love in 2 Corinthians 13.11, and the God of peace in Hebrews 13.20. The word account, where it says we must give an account to him, is also logos, as is the word of God. And so it's sort of bracketed, this 4.12 to 13 is bracketed by the word logos or logon. 
The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any double-edged blade, sharper than every double-edged blade, and it penetrates to the separation of soul and spirit, and that's the logos, the word. And we must give a logos to him, an accounting to him. Whether we believe it or know it or not, we must give an account to God and will do so. In another sense, we are doing so, as Hebrews thirteen seventeen says, of pastors or shepherds who teach and watch over the souls of those to whom they teach the word of God. They give an account both now and at what we call the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat. And so the word of God must be divine. The eyes of him to whom we must give an account are the all-seeing eyes of the omniscient and omnipresent God whose essence and act are love, is love. We must all appear before the tribunal of God to give an account to him and the more we will have been converted by his word, Psalm 19, and conformed to his son, Philippians 3.10, the better, the more the better we are conformed to him. Now consider the following pericope from Mark chapter 10, a little episode within that gospel. We considered the author of Mark being the young man who fled naked from the temple police in Mark 14, 51 to 52. Now we're considering another nameless man who came to Jesus, and various guesses have been made about who that man was. But that's not our point today. I'm going to read my translation of, Hebrew, of Mark 10, 17 to 22. Remember, we're dealing again with the eyes of him to whom we must give an account, the eyes that see us all the way down to our soul and spirit and the deliberations and determinations of our conscious minds and our subconscious minds. Mark ten seventeen, And as Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him, knelt down before him, and was asking him, Good teacher, now that means rabbi, good rabbi, what shall I do to come into possession of life in the coming age? Jesus said to him, Why are you calling me good? No one is good except one. Now he's going to later tell that young man that he, he's missing something, and it's one. He's missing God, basically. There is none good except one that being God. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Never give false testimony. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. As if to go on and on. I'm sure his hand was going like this. The man replied, teacher, I've kept all these since I was a boy. Here's the verse that struck me the first time I read it, I read it, and has struck me over and over again like a gentle jolt every time I read it ever since. In 1021, Jesus, seeing him, 
loved him. That means Jesus seeing him, really seeing him, in the Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 sense, for he is the word of God, loved him and said to him, you're missing one. He didn't say one thing or one item or... He said, you're missing one. He, he had already said there's only one good, God. Only one good, and that's God. You, young man, are missing one. Meaning God. And so, because the man... Well, I'm not going to even comment on it. I'm going to continue what Jesus said here. Go, go, sell what you have, and give the proceeds to the poor... And you'll have a storehouse in heaven. Then come, follow me. The Byzantine text adds, so we're not sure of its authenticity, but the Byzantine text adds, take, take up your cross. Verse 22, the man was stunned at this command. The word command there is logos. And went away pained. For he had many possessions. Now there are many things that can be observed about this encounter. We're dealing with the eyes of him to whom we must give an account though. The eyes of him. Many things can be observed about this encounter. My own encounter with the Lord was preceded by a perfect recitation and recall. Really a recitation from outside of myself to my mind and my heart of the Ten Commandments. And that was accompanied by a terrifying awareness that I had failed to be obedient to any of them in my heart, in my heart of hearts. The one thing that stands out to me in this pericope, however, this episode, is Jesus, seeing him, loved him. Jesus, seeing this man, means that he really saw him that he assessed him in the Hebrews 4.12 and 13 way. The word of God is a critical assessor of the deliberations and determinations of the heart. And that's Jesus assesses the hearts too. Assessing this man, seeing his innermost deliberations and determinations, seeing the judgments that this man had come to after his own reflections, seeing the insights that this man held to, the belief system that he had, his own self-awareness. Jesus saw it all. But the word sees the blood. And this man was seen by the one who sees the hearts of all human beings and loves all human beings. Now this man will possess the life of the age to come. Because Jesus is the end of the law as the way to righteousness in 1 Corinthians 10.4.
and as the way to life. In Romans 5.18. The life that this man wanted to inherit, he will inherit it. Because God is good. And Jesus is God. Another principle that I recall from time to time, and every time again, it's with the same punch, the same power, is the principle of Pseudo-Dionysius, or Dionysius the Areopagite, who wrote this in his book called Divine Names, speaking of the one who is good. He said, let us move on now to the name good which the sacred writers have preeminently set apart for the supra-divine God. And then he puts in parentheses Matthew 19, 17, 20, 15, and Luke 18, 19. He seems to omit the Markin passage that we just looked at, but we'll add that. So let us move on to the name good, which the sacred writers have preeminently set apart for the supra-divine God from all other names. They call the divine subsistence itself goodness. And I love this. This essential good, by the very fact of its existence, extends goodness into all things. That's why I say this man will have the life of the coming age and probably already does and does already now. This man has that life because God is good, and he is one. And God, who is good, by his very existence, extends his goodness to all beings. And that includes that man. That explains why Jesus didn't really just write this guy off. When we consider the commandments given in Hebrews for example, 13.1. It says, let brotherly love continue. That's the love shared between siblings in a functional, not dysfunctional family. When we read that verse, we must remember Hebrews 2.11 and the Christological interpretation of Psalm 22.22 that Jesus calls those whom God is calling into glory his brothers and sisters. So when we talk about let brotherly love continue, we're talking about the love of Jesus Christ continuing among the band of brothers. He's your brother. Yes, he's the exalted great high priest and the great king of the city of the great king. He is exalted at the right hand of the Father and the Majesty in the heavens above the heavens. He is our forerunner. He's the author and perfecter of faith. He is God almighty, omnipresent, and omniscient. But he's also your brother. Your friend and mine. He made us all his siblings when he was made like us in every way for the purpose of destroying the devil who held over the human race the fear of death. Whenever governments hold over their people the fear of death, you know they're operating by the hand of the devil. Hebrews 2.14 
So we're about to see that Jesus, becoming altogether like his brethren, was with the exception of sin, without sin. So this man, in Mark 10, 22 to 27, would indeed come into possession of the life of the age or the life of future world, even though he was disqualified from discipleship in this life as long as he was unwilling to undergo conversions by which he would be assimilated to Jesus and to the mind of Christ. Jesus didn't just write off this man and say, well, I guess he'll burn in hell. To the contrary, when asked by his disciples a little later, when he said how hard it is, children, for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, they said, well, then who can be saved, recognizing that none of us of ourselves could enter into the kingdom of God in ourselves. So they rightly ask, well, then who can be saved in Mark 10, 26? Jesus replied, humanly, it's impossible, but not with God, because all things are possible with God. That's Mark 10, 27, but it's also Matthew 19, 26. So Jesus loved the man who lacked one thing. Why? Because my word, says God, will see the blood. As the Cairo Geniza Targum manuscript says of Exodus twelve thirteen. Or, as we might say it, Jesus loves us despite our sin because along the length of the blade of the word of God is the blood groove. And he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our series, once again, is called We See Jesus. We should never forget, though, that he sees us with eyes of love, eyes of unimaginable love. Our whole problem in this life, when it comes to psychological problems or emotional chagrin that we have in this life, is because we don't understand the unimaginable degree of God's love, his unrestricted love. And his assessment of us always accompanies his regard for the blood that redeemed us. The living word of God's assessment of our hearts meets the blood of Christ's purification of our consciences. In Hebrews 9.14 With our hearts assessed by the living word of God and our consciences purged from dead works by the blood of Christ, we become practically qualified to serve the living God as priests and intercessors for ourselves and for others. A service which ought to be constant 
and will become more and more our habit as we are more and more strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In 2 Timothy 2.1, the grace that strengthens our heart. In Hebrews 13.9, when the hearts of his people are strengthened by grace, then habits form like habitual prayer, and it does not become a chore, but something that's as natural as breathing in and breathing out. We must give an account to him, says the scripture, and says Hebrews 4.13, as well as 13.17. We must give an account to him who surveys the hearts. He assesses us with eyes that are like a blazing fire, says Revelation 1.14. And the day will show what kind of works we've done in this body by the test of fire in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 to 15. Song of Solomon reveals this fire to be the vehement fire of love that many waters cannot put out. A flood can't put it out. Song of Solomon 8, 6, and 7. Our God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12, 29. And God is love, in 1 John 4, 16, is not a contradiction. God's fire of love will consume all that is not pleasing to him and all that is not beneficial to us. In 1 John 4, 8 and 16 and Hebrews 12, 29, We have no contradiction, I'll say it again. That God is love and that God is a consuming fire mean the same thing. The upshot of this fiery judgment will be Romans 14, 11 and Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Every creature, including every human being, giving praise to God and acknowledging openly that which is our confession already that the Lord, Yahweh, the Son of God, is Jesus. In the end, everything that has breath will praise him, says the last verse of the last psalm in our English Bibles. So here's the practical point I made in our last Increment, 109, I make it again in 110. Since we're already naked and completely exposed, let's not run from the gaze of the Word of God. Let's let Him search us and know us, assess us, and correct us. Let's let Him create in us a clean heart as Psalm 51 makes the request. And renew in us a right spirit. For this renewal is accomplished entirely in his love, says Zephaniah 3.17. This renewal involves four kinds of conversions. We won't get into them today, though we've looked at them before. Intellectual. Moral, 
spiritual and psychic conversions. Now let's take a first foray into Hebrews 4.14 or another foray. We've looked at it before. Therefore, having a great archpriest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, the whole point of John's gospel, I wrote these things so that you, the reader, might decide for yourself and believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, in the process of believing, you would have the life of the coming age now. Therefore, having a great archpriest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's keep a firm grip on our acknowledgement of what we know as reality, of who we know as reality. Now, I want to close by suggesting that we imagine the believers whom the Hebrews author addressed. Imagine them publicly bringing animal sacrifices to a priest to be offered or to a high priest in Israel in the old Jerusalem. Imagine them doing that when they had a great archpriest like Melchizedek at the right hand of God who had already offered an eternally effective sacrifice. The pastor who teaches and who wrote Hebrews would find this to be an egregious shame. This practice had to involve cognitive dissonance. What is cognitive dissonance? We hear the word or the phrase tossed about lately. Well, according to one of my other favorite books, the American Heritage College Dictionary, it's always good to have a dictionary at hand, cognitive dissonance is the psychological tension that occurs when one holds mutually exclusive beliefs or attitudes and that often motivates people to modify their thoughts or behaviors in order to reduce the tension. Oh, I believe in the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but I also believe that I can get away with offering those sacrifices if it means that Rome will see me as a Jew and therefore afford me some protections, you see. That's how I can reduce the tension that's in my life, the anxiety. I can reduce the anxiety. Well, there's a link between the separation of soul from spirit and the separation of the holy place from the holy of holies. That is the place of utmost holiness in the tabernacle. The connection is made here because the intention of the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29, through this pastor who teaches, is to penetrate to the human spirit of the recipients of this epistle, and that includes us today on the level of our own time, and direct our attention away 
from the earthly, to direct their attention away specifically from the earthly man-made tabernacle to the tabernacle in the heavens that is not of this creation. For us, that would mean that we anticipate the new creation. Now, this can be discerned in the very flow of the homily from 4.12 to 14. 4.12 of Hebrews speaks of the division of soul from spirit. Hebrews 4.14 refers at least obliquely to the separation of the rooms of the heavenly tabernacle and to Jesus' entry through the veil into the place of utmost holiness in the heavenly tabernacle, which is not of this present unrenewed creation. It is of an altogether new creation. Hebrews 9, verses 10 to 11 and we can also confer with Hebrews 6.20 and Matthew 27.51 where the veil was torn. And then back again to Hebrews 10.20, the veil representing the flesh of Jesus Christ. Torn by crucifixion, opening the way to the Holy of Holies for all. Now, the former first Levitical order, this is stuff we're going to be considering now. This is just first hints of it. The former first Levitical order, based on the system of animal and grain sacrifices, in a tied-down and pegged-to-the-ground man-made tent, pegged to the ground that was cursed for Adam's sake. That system is going to be distinguished from the second order and the second system based on the once and for all and forever sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the second that Hebrews 10.9 talks about. Consequently, the penetration to the division of soul and spirit led to the separation of the spiritual listeners who received Hebrews from the first system which God took away and a new orientation is given to them by the word of God to the second, as it's called, which is related to the better, the new, and the everlasting, not evanescent covenant. The same living and operational word of God will effect conversions in us that will renew us in God's love, that will make us to be in some meaningful measure and to some discernible degree as Jesus is in this world. In 1 John 4.17 and will allow us to have confidence in the day of assessment in the day when we give an account to him. Thank you, Father, for this reflection, for this meditation upon your word. May it reach deep into the hearts of all listeners and create motivation and spiritual momentum onto the high ground of the upper ever 
upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. On toward the prize. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.